today we're kind of starting a, a series. I say starting, although we started last weekend in a series, but we did something different that I've never done before last weekend, and that was that I kind of gave uh, an overview of the whole book of Titus. I read the whole book. Um, I brought some of the men up of the church, and we prayed through the, the book of Titus, some of the pastoral prayers, and uh, you can find those in the study guide that we've provided on either entrance of the auditorium that really brings you through the the book of Titus. And that's not something you have to do in any particular way, but would encourage you to really study through this book. And so last week was really the overview. This week is really the intro. So there's kind of two weeks of introduction before we get more and more into the text. But in the introduction, there's still so much that we can cover. And even what I cover today, it still feels like there's even more in these four verses that could be covered. And so just to, just to uh, remind you and, and make you aware, if you weren't here last week, just a little bit about the book of Titus. This letter is written to a young preacher assigned a difficult task. And the book of Titus was written to Titus, the person Titus, from the Apostle Paul. And the churches on the island of Crete were in need of maturing. And this letter was designed to assist Titus in that work. Crete was a small island, as you can see behind me on the image. There's, there's many surrounding areas. And, and so Paul is really sending Titus to this area that needed to mature in the gospel. They had heard the gospel and they were an established church, but they were not yet a mature church. And so this letter, as we read through it, is a personal letter, but it's not a private letter. I really want you to understand that difference. It's a personal letter to Titus, but it is not a private letter. It's a letter that would have been read by Titus to the congregations under his leadership. And so this is the letter, of, uh, the letter to Titus from Paul. Now, here's a little bit about Paul, because I think it's important for us to understand the author and, and the recipient of the letter, that Paul, before we meet him, before we see the Apostle Paul and all the good that he's doing in the church, we first meet him in the beginning of the book of Acts. And we don't see him as Paul, we see him as Saul of Tarsus. He was a persecutor of Christians and an enemy of Christ. He wanted nothing to do with this gospel truth. And he stood, in fact, in support of murdering the first Christian martyr. And in Acts chapter 7, verse 58, it says that those that killed Stephen laid down their coats at Saul's feet. And so Saul was not at all one who would have considered himself an apostle of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But God had a sovereign plan, a clear plan for this radical who was against the development of the early church. And traveling, while traveling to Damascus, on the road of Damascus, with the intent of destroying Christians' lives and homes, with killing Christians and imprisoning Christians, in Acts chapter 9, we see that Jesus appeared to him and saved him. That he met him where he was at, and he showed Saul the truth about what he was doing. And he saved him like he saves you and me. And, and here's the, the key piece that I think is important for us to understand about Saul, who then became Paul, was that he was saved to serve. Jesus used him in an incredible way to further the gospel in the church. And so we see in the book of Galatians a lot about, about Paul's story and about Titus and their relationship. But really the incredible thing out of Acts 9 and out of chapter 1 of Galatians is that Paul becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. 
So here we have a, a zealous Jew breathing threats against the church, not wanting anything to do with these people who are believing in the foolishness of the cross. And God uses him as an apostle to the Gentiles. And so this is the author of this letter to Titus. And so Titus, as we see in the, the book of Galatians, was a Gentile by birth. So think about this relationship as a zealous Jew for the, the ways of Judaism, killing Christians. Jesus meets him where he's at and then uses him to establish Gentile leaders in the church because grace has been extended to all through the truth of the gospel. So this is the relationship between Paul and Titus. And then also we see that Titus had accompanied Paul to Jerusalem during the controversy over circumcision. That the Jewish circumcision party really believed that, that the Gentiles needed to follow the Mosaic law. And Paul said, no, 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 no. They need to follow the gospel. And so he brings Titus as an example of someone who had experienced the truth of the gospel and was free from the Mosaic law. You can read this in Acts 15 and Galatians chapter 2. And I would imagine Titus as coming along felt really good walking out of that, out of that conversation of do I need to get circumcised? Do I not need to get circumcised? Do I need to follow the Mosaic law? He walked out in freedom. And so here's the relationship between Paul and Titus. And during Paul's third journey, Titus became his personal representative to the church at Corinth. We read this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, this relationship and just to give you an overview, I'm not reading these extensive verses, but I want you to know that these relationships come out of Scripture. That Paul and Titus were, were close. And in fact, Paul calls Titus his son in the common faith, showing an intimate relationship there. And so what we need to understand about Titus was, this was not Titus's first time establishing the church and helping it to grow and to mature. That this is what Titus did as a leader of the church. That Paul would send him to these churches and help them establish and help them grow and help them be grounded in the gospel. And so the church in Crete, in, in verse 12 of, of chapter 1 in Titus, Paul quotes a Cretan prophet. Not, not a prophet of God, but a Cretan prophet, their own prophet, who said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. So could you imagine if, for, for just example, for you, to, for you to just think on this, because we don't have a prophet of Cedra Woolley, but just think on this for a moment. If our mayor said, listen, pastor, if you're going to come into this town, I need you to understand that there are, this is a town full of liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This is, this is what was being spoken of their own community. This was what Titus was up against and there, were ongoing, there was ongoing opposition for him from the ungodly and from the legalists within his congregation. And I think one of the main points that we're really going to see Paul address is that a healthy church is a gospel-centered church. That a healthy church is a gospel-centered church. And being gospel-centered, we talked about this last week, is to have our gospel belief align with our gospel behavior. That for those who live outside that gospel-centered living, who don't consider the gospel as needing to be central to every area of their life, some believers, I would say included, find themselves really separating all areas of life into these personal categories with the belief and really the idea that these categories are separate from one another. That here's my work life, here's my church life, here's my family life, and all of these are separate and they don't bleed into one another. 
But, but really, for the gospel-centered believer and for the gospel-centered church, they see no such separation, that it doesn't exist. There is no separation there, that everything they do, everything they say, and everything they believe is rooted and centered around Christ. So, so Christ really becomes the peg that's driven into the center of all things so that the, so that the gospel really invades all of those categories. And so really, as we read Titus chapter one in those first four verses, Paul's gonna really unpack. Here's what it, look, it looks, looks, like, looks like, like for the gospel church to be gospel-centered. He's really gonna unpack for us what we're gonna see kind of from the outside looking in as Paul instructs Titus. He's really going to encourage him and instruct him here's what you need to be rooted in, and here's what the church needs to be rooted in. And so we're going to read in Titus chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. And so as we unpack this, really my sentence for you, those fill in the blanks, is that a gospel-centered church grows in truth and serves as those who are saved. That Paul really talks about growing in truth. But in the second half of verse one, Paul states that for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. And the two words here that stand out are are truth and godliness. That when Paul says knowledge of the truth, he refers to hearing and understanding the gospel message. That knowledge does not replace faith. Knowledge does not replace faith as a response to the gospel message, but it does have a critical role in the context of false teaching. Okay? So the gospel, the truth of the gospel, knowing what the truth is, discerning what the truth is, is really important for us as believers. That even as my, my time away, a great example of this would be I was praying through this series, praying for our church. And I just felt overwhelmed by, by doubt and by questions as I was mapping out this series, writing down pastoral prayers. And I just, I really just felt that the enemy just hit me hard. Who are you to, to preach this? Who are you to write down pastoral prayers? You 20-something nothing. Who's going to preach this to men twice your age, twice your, uh, twice your position in life, twice your income, twice the whatever would make me feel most insecure? To, to those who are older than you, no more as a parent, as a follower of God, on and on the list goes. As I'm just going, man, I, I can't do this. I'm busted up. I'm a mess. I'm a mess. I'm still learning. I'm still growing. I'm not to the point of maturity. How am I going to talk about being a mature gospel-centered church? And I just continued to press in through prayer. And it was there that, that as I was just kind of eyes closed looking up, God just reminded me of a really incredible truth, that I'm not the point. 
I'm not the point. Knowledge, my knowledge is not the point. And God has not pushed his chips in on me in such a way that he's put the kingdom in my hands as though all hope relies on my ability to perform for you. That's not the truth. That, 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 that is not on my ability to perform. And in that moment, the, the truth of the gospel just really invaded where I realized the need, that there was a need for me to communicate truth to myself, the knowledge of the truth of the gospel, that the cross of Jesus Christ is what frees me from an identity of shame and guilt and sin, that my dependence is solely on the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ alone, not on me. So I think as we look at combating false teaching, I think it's not just from outside. I think it's also from internal. And so for us, the knowledge of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ is important for us to communicate continually to ourselves. That this truth is critical for us as believers. That it's what sustains us. It's what grows us. And it's what helps us discern what is false. And then Paul also makes a connection here. He states that the gospel truth accords with godliness, which means that the gospel and godliness are consistent with one another. They go hand in hand. So to grow in the truth of the gospel, we must also be in pursuit of godliness. So this is where the belief of the gospel and our behavior in response to the gospel commingle in a perfect harmony. But it doesn't mean that we're trying to be God, but that we are growing in the character of God, following after and growing in the character of God. That it's by grace extended to us when we are saved that we're empowered by his spirit with Christ in us to grow in godly character because a knowledge of the truth and godliness are intimately connected for the believer. And Paul, in fact, gives us an outline of both ungodliness and godliness later in verse 11 and 13 of Titus chapter 2. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So it's by the grace of God that is training us to renounce ungodliness, which is really slavery to the world. That anything apart from God, the ungodliness is really us being slaves to the world. So really there's there's either godliness or worldliness and the gospel then being central to the church and central in our individual lives is the truth that sets us free from a life lived in slavery to the world. The gospel becomes the truth that frees us from that slavery. And so then through that truth, we are set free and we're set free to serve. Paul begins his letter to Titus by showing himself as an example to Titus and the believers in Crete, saying, I, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. And the word servant here in Greek is doulos, meaning bondservant or slave. And so Paul says, listen, 
I'm not a slave to the world and, and to the way that I once was. I'm a slave to God. I'm submitted to God. And in fact, only here does Paul call himself a servant of God. Normally, it's of Christ. And so for Paul, there's no difference. There's no difference here. He's saying, I'm submitted to the authority of God. I'm submitted to the authority of Christ. That he's God's slave, bought and paid for by precious, the, the precious blood of Jesus. That he's no longer his own. He's a slave of God. And here Paul displays the same humility and submission of a slave. And his life serves as an example of godliness to the believers in Crete, and I believe to us today. And here Paul, here, Paul does something incredible that I think is really important for us to understand because Paul's always communicating that he is a servant or he is a follower of Christ, and he's also an apostle. So here he gives us both his position as a follower of Christ and his role as a leader in the church. That he's a servant and an apostle. And Paul makes it clear that he's been saved by the grace of God through the work of Christ. That his serving the church is because of the truth which was revealed to him through Jesus. And Paul even clarifies that in the first chapter, in the first verse of the book of Galatians, that it was revealed, that truth was revealed to him by Jesus, not by man. And so he'd been called by God. And so for Paul, what he's saying here is salvation compels service. That salvation compels service. And what we see in the New Testament and in the early church leaders is almost this eagerness to, to further the gospel and to serve. We almost see this angst. And, and, and I would imagine if you read the four gospels and then you read the book of Acts, they're thinking that next week Jesus is coming back. And so it's quite clear, in fact, where that angst comes from. And, and I, I don't believe we have that angst today. We have that knowledge. And in fact, we're full of knowledge. We're full of all of the stances of eschatology and all of the theology around that and the different stances. And, and it becomes almost overwhelming that, that we more define the second coming of Christ than, than do work expectantly of it. And so here, I don't have time to unpack that more, but, but I just think that's important for us to understand that in the, in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, there's this angst that, that because of the truth of the gospel, what they had experienced in Jesus, they were growing in it. And their attitude and response to that truth and spreading that truth was, well, we've got to go. God, Jesus gave us the great commission. We've got to go. We've got to serve. There is no other point for our life. We have to be grounded in this truth. And so this is the angst of the gospel-centered church. This is the angst of the gospel-centered church, that as they grow in the truth, they serve rather than desiring to be served. They serve continually with statements, we've, we've got to go. We've got to be in that space. The gospel has to be shared there. And so I pray that we would have that angst, that we would serve, and that as those see our serving, that we would do that as those who are saved. Not those that are as those that are entitled, not those that, that carry some specific leadership role, but we would serve as those who are saved. And serving as those who are saved is not something done by those who have this 
puffed up, arrogant, or or religious-specific posture, but it's done by those who have been radically transformed by the truth of the gospel and are continuing to be transformed. So therefore, because of this transformation through the truth of the gospel, they serve. The reality of someone who's been transformed by the truth of the gospel, the only response there is, well, I've got to serve. I've got to be active in this. I've got to share this. So because for those that have been saved, the response is to serve and to do good works as unto God, the God that saved them. So it's not that we serve to be saved. Let me make that clear. It's not that we serve to be saved, but that because we are saved, we're empowered by grace to go and serve. And so our serving, our our active serving one another and our serving and doing good works is not something that God needs. It's not something that God needs. God doesn't need you to work. He doesn't need you to do good works. He desires for you to do good works. And the need is in the physical of our community. And fruit is spiritually, fruit is produced from that. But our neighbor is the one who has the need. God has the desire. And it's something that that our neighbor, if we look around, needs always. It's a way, in fact, that we can love our neighbor and show the love of Jesus that Jesus has for us and has for them. That it's the work of God in our lives put on display for others to see him. And this is why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So the end result there is to bring glory to God. This is his desire for us. And as we come to a close, here's what I believe is important for us to look over these next six weeks through the book of Titus. For us to be a gospel-centered church, we need to understand that when the, when the gospel is central in our lives, the good news that Jesus has taken our place and redeemed us in relationship with the Father and given us the joy of eternal life, when that gospel is central in our lives, I believe we really long for community that's found in the local church, for active gospel-centered community. And and let me tell you this with honesty and, and truth. It's not because it's perfect. But I think there's a longing there when we fully experience the gospel, not because it's perfect, but because it's the people of God learning to be like him, learning to walk in relationship with him, And regardless of how imperfect we think it may be, I think that in a gospel-centered church, we're actively in pursuit of that together. That it's the most honest, imperfect place you will find on earth. I believe that the gospel-centered church will always still be imperfect because we're in our human flesh state. But it should be the most honest, imperfect place that it's within this covenant community, if the community itself is gospel-centered, that we experience a church that loves the broken, that corrects the wanderer, that strengthens the weak, and encourages the disheartened. 
That is a gospel-centered church that is growing in truth and is serving as those who are saved. Let's pray.